a Pantry Studio production. The following may contain strong language and deals with adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. The mountains are a place that many people know and call home. As a matter of fact, for some people, finding their way through the woods and the mountains is no more of a difficult proposition than it would be to find their way to the nearest convenience store or gas station. So how is it that in 1998, near Christmas time, Derek James Ingebrigtsen, who had spent a good part of his life in the woods, being very familiar with him, simply vanished without a trace. And nearly a quarter of a century later, no one knows what happened to him. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is Episode 21, Broken Dreams, The Mountain Mystery of Derek James Ingebretson. I will be the last to fall There are over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, and those who have seemingly vanished. They are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Sloan. I'm Chris Sloan, and I'm really glad that you could join us for another episode of The Mountain Mysteries. Remember, you can find out more about The Mountain Mysteries on our official website, www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com And don't forget to join us on Patreon. Get early access to the episodes, discounts on our store, and our merchandise and a lot more. You can do all that right there through www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com You know, we have a disclaimer at the beginning of each episode, but I feel that it's important to state again This episode may not be appropriate for younger listeners or sensitive listeners, as we're going to be talking about the abduction and or the disappearance of a young child. Derek James Ingebretson was an eight-year-old little boy, and like most little boys, he loved R.L. Stein's Goosebumps. Even had a nickname, it was Bear Boy, due to his love of the outdoors. Now there's this story of how, at a week old, his mother strapped him in a pack and took him on a bear hunt. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I can tell you that he grew up hunting with his father and grandfather and doing a lot of mushroom picking with his mother's father. Derek went on a lot of mushroom hunts in Pelican Butte, which is a steep-sided dormant shield volcano in Oregon. 
No, it was less than three weeks before Christmas in 1998 when Derek Ingebrigtsen joined his father and grandfather on a trip to the Wanema National Forest in Oregon. The Ingebrigtsens had headed out to the forest on December 5th to find a Christmas tree. You see, Christmas was an exciting time for Derek. Not just because of the presents, but also because, well, he would go Christmas tree hunting with his family. The Ingebretsons would select one of Oregon's postcard-worthy evergreens for their Christmas tree. Big, fluffed, beautiful. The Ingebretson family hadn't planned to go to the woods that year to go Christmas tree hunting. Lori, Robert's wife, had talked him into using an artificial tree that year, despite the fact that he was an enthusiastic outdoorsman who always looked forward to that family annual Christmas tree hunt. Lori wanted less mess around the house and was convinced an artificial tree would achieve that. But, one of their neighbors wanted a real tree. But, their disability prevented them from going to the woods and chopping one down. So, the neighbors asked the Ingebretsons to chop a tree down for them. And, oh, they were more than happy to do that. They started their search on the mountainside of Pelican Butte, a steep and densely wooded area almost 4,000 feet up above Upper Klamath Lake. As Bob's red Toyota climbed that west side road, Robert remembers telling his father they couldn't hang around as it was already after 2 p.m. and it would be getting dark around 4 since it was already late in the year. Bob pulled up to a turnout at milepost 12 on the way to Rocky Point Resort. Robert helped Derek get into his blue snowsuit and the three of them started up an embankment into that beautiful pine forest. The scent of evergreens filled the air. The crunch of the new-fallen snow. Robert walked ahead of the other two, telling Derek to stay with his grandfather. Well, it was no surprise that Derek swung his hatchet at every passing tree. He had to make his trademark indents. As he dashed from tree trunk to tree trunk, he repeatedly asked his grandpa if he could go catch up with his dad. Bob was annoyed and eventually gave in and let him scurry off into the white thicket. He wasn't worried about Derek taking his own route because the boy knew his way around the wilderness better than most adults. A little eight-year-old Derek ran off in a good spirit and decked out his bright blue snowsuit, a denim jacket, navy blue Route 66 pants, a black sweatshirt, an Oakland A's t-shirt, a ball cap, some camo print boots, and gloves with those... Oh, so famous Goosebumps logo on them. When they regrouped less than an hour later, he realized that Derek was... Well, he was nowhere to be found. Each one thinking that the other had been watching him, the little boy wandered off into the forest. Robert said he remembered asking, where's Derek? Bob said he thought that he was with him. He was with you. Robert immediately ran back into the forest. He had to find Derek and had to do it quickly. Daylight was leaving, and it was leaving by the minute. Heavy snows were beginning to fall. Robert screamed out his son's name as he sprinted through the wet, falling snow. His voice echoed through the frosty trees, but there was no response. It was an hour that passed by. Darkness set in. Snow fell harder. Robert finally reunited with Bob, and the two men kept on calling for Derek. The silence was as deafening as anything anyone could have possibly heard. 
It was that evening when Derek was reported missing by his father and grandfather, who stopped a passing motorist, identified as Fred Haynes. That was around a quarter past four. It was an hour after starting the search for Derek. The motorist traveled to a nearby resort two miles away, where he placed a phone call to 911. Looking over the 911 transcripts, Mr. Haynes became agitated as the dispatcher insists that before they can send anyone out, the father must call to give more information as the dispatch office can't send an army, end quote. Well, that would be another two hours before police finally got to the scene and about five hours before a true search team began. Well, this was in part due to the blizzard conditions. Oh yeah, there was a blizzard falling, slamming that area and also in part due to a search-and-rescue banquet taking place that police did not want to disturb. Yeah, you heard me right. Derek's grandfather managed to retrace his grandson's steps back to where their pickup was parked. He then went up a hill and was looping back around. Derek had stopped to make a snow angel in the road. Derek had a small hatchet with him at the time, and cuts were also found on trees in the same general area. Sadly, though, since that time, a snowplow had passed through, obliterating any other tracks the little boy had made. Robert felt certain that his son had not walked back into the trees. Now, when she found out her son was missing, his mother raced the Pelican Butte to start searching. Word soon spread of Derek's disappearance, and volunteers quickly grouped together to search the snow-covered mountain, which by that time was cloaked in the darkness of nightfall. His mother, Lori, kept watch in a donated camper van at the edge of the woods, a bonfire burning brightly to help Derek find his way to her. The Ingebretsons practically lived in Pelican Butte throughout the search. During one of Lori's many sleepless nights, she gazed out the window and several times thought she saw Derek emerging from the wilderness with a smile. However, she quickly realized it was an hallucination. Initial searches were completed by foot with search canines, as well as aerial searches using a Civil Air Patrol plane and an Air Force Reserve helicopter. Several relatives also undertook independent searches. Over the next couple of weeks, on snowmobile and foot, hundreds of people would search Pelican Butte. But for police, the search was as good as over. After eight days, they pronounced Derek dead asserting that there was no way that he could have survived in that inclement weather. Derek's parents stated that their son had grown up in the mountains and he was used to walking of distances of well past 20 miles in steep terrain. Well, the volunteers soldiered on. They found several potential clues. A makeshift shelter, candy wrapper, and a bookmark from Derek's school. Still, the police said he was dead. Search dogs were unable to detect his scent. Knowing Derek's love of reading, the bookmark was intriguing, but authorities failed to connect the findings of Derek's disappearance. Now, because of these extreme conditions of the area, law enforcement speculated that he would have quickly succumbed to the elements. Family members were convinced that Derek had made his way to the road and might have been picked up by a stranger, but the sheriff discounted those concerns. A hole in the ice was discovered in the lake by Bob during the search, and then there was a child's footprint on the bank. Divers searched the next day, and 
An additional search was done in the area during the spring thaw, but there was no luck. The belief that Derek's hatchet would be in the lake if he had fallen in led to a conclusion that he wasn't there. If a hatchet were found in the sediment of the inlet, it could have meant that Derek had fallen into the lake and got stuck under the ice. Portland diver Jeff Priest spent several hours carefully working his way through the shallow water using a metal detector assigned to work underwater. He found several metal objects, including an oil filter, a metal road sign, but there was no hatchet and no trace of Derek to be found anywhere. Subsequent reports of a mysterious vehicle in that area that day had been made. A witness claimed to have seen an unidentified man struggling with a young boy in the area during the day of Ingebretson's disappearance. The witness ignored the struggle as they assumed the man was the boy's father. Additional reports were made of an unidentified man driving a two-door Honda, asking passerbys for direction in the forest that day. Now, it has been theorized that this man may have been the one to have abducted Derek. But on December 18th, all searches ended. The Ingebretsons were concerned that the snow and sub-zero temperatures were putting the volunteers at risk. And for the next two years, Derek's parents devoted every spare moment combing the mountain for their son. There was plenty of criticism to go around. None of that was lacking, that's for sure. The criticism was all on the search and rescue efforts, as many believed authorities had been too slow to get to the scene that night that Derek disappeared. The search was not started for almost five hours after the first 911 call came in from the passing motorist because the coordinator was reluctant to interrupt the Christmas dinner for Klamath County Search and Rescue Team annual awards dinner at Molly's Restaurant until he was sure a rescue was actually warranted. Friends of the rescue team wrote negative letters about the Ingebretsons to the local paper, Lori recalls. The group's leader was even quoted in the newspaper saying defensively, we didn't lose the kid, likely pushing the blame off themselves and onto the father and grandfather. The sheriff was publicly dismissive when the Ingebretsons announced that they believed Derek had been abducted and posted a $20,000 reward for information leading to his safe return. If I were a parent, he said, I guess I'd be hanging on to that too. The family didn't care for the dismissiveness of that particular comment. Robert and his father passed lie detector tests, but rumors swirled around the family. Once, Lori was standing in line at Kmart behind two women as they discussed Derek's disappearance. I heard the dad killed him. She remembers one woman saying, with the other one replying, well, I heard the mom could have had something to do with it. All I can say is I hope if Derek did die, I hope he died on that mountain and not at the hands of some sick person, Lori once said. If he died on the mountain, he just closed his eyes and went to sleep. There would have been no pain or anything. Well, authorities insisted that Derek had wandered off into the woods and died. They stood by and insisted that animals must have scattered his remains. But the Ingebretson family never really believed this version of events, especially as no evidence had ever been found to suggest that was true. No bones or torn clothing had ever been found. 
This further supported the idea that Derek had been abducted on the mountain by a man struggling with a boy along the nearby highway, as one witness had reported. Lori and Robert retreated into their own world. Lori's thoughts turned so dark, her doctor had to put her on antidepressants. She gained 80 pounds. Robert gained 70. Robert couldn't speak to his father. He blamed himself for not finding Derek, but he blamed Bob for losing him. Bob Ingerbretson was too wracked with guilt to even talk about it. Lori watched her own father, Ben Davis, fall apart. He and Derek had been inseparable and had spent hours in the woods hunting for mushrooms and morals. Three days into the search for Derek, a distraught Davis punched Bob Ingebretson in the face. The family was starting to blame each other for Derek's disappearance, something that I cannot imagine that Derek himself would have condoned whatsoever. Lori, known for her hot temper, never turned on Robert, even though many of her family expected her to. She said she was too afraid of losing the only person who would fully understand what her loss was all about. But the couple married when they were teenagers, drifted from their other two children. Amy was 18 during the time and Kenny was only 15. Amy had been a straight-A student with plans for medical school. But when her baby brother disappeared and other families started to mourn, well, her grades went down the chute. They plummeted. She spent more and more time away from home. She would later admit to having begun experimenting with drugs during those years after. Kenny, who had shared a room with his little brother Derek, had gathered all of Derek's belongings, boxed them up, and moved them to the garage several months after Derek disappeared. When Lori discovered what Kenny had done, she went off the deep end, screaming in anger. Robert had taken a lot of time off work. At the same time, the couple had spent thousands of dollars searching for Derek. They paid for everything, from psychics to a boat to search Klamath Lake. Eventually, they went bankrupt. Family hunts and trips to the beach ended. One event after another kept the family trapped in despair. On September 24, 1999, graffiti was discovered in a rest area bathroom at the Sangin Rest Area, about 300 miles south of Portland. Law enforcement identified the graffiti as being referential to Derek's case and disappearance. The graffiti imagery and or the text was never made available to the public. Derek's parents drove to view the graffiti upon being notified of its finding. Lori stated to the press, I think it's just a big sick joke. I thought if somebody would have had Derek, if they put this on the wall, they were wanting to be caught. If they were wanting to be caught... Why didn't they leave something of Derek's there? She said there was no clothing or any of his favorite items, like his goosebump books found in the restroom or surrounding area. Nothing was found to indicate Derek was ever there. Even the FBI insisted that it was a sick hoax. A boy named Derek was found in Texas under unusual circumstances and even looked a lot like the Ingebretson's son. This Derek later proved to be someone else, though. There was also a bone discovered in Pelican Butte in 2000, but it turned out to be from a deer. After the family waited several days to confirm its identity, both of these leads led to no answers at all. It was in 2002 that it seemed that the case had been cracked when a letter arrived in the Ingerbretson's door from an inmate claiming to know who killed their son. I know, according to the letter, who took your son. 
The litter gave the name of Frank James Milligan. Oh, you can bet the cops were very interested in him. In 2004, investigators announced that convicted child rapist Frank J. Milligan was the prime suspect in Derek's disappearance. Milligan was employed by the state of Oregon as a troubled juvenile counselor aide. Milligan, quite often, traveled across Oregon counseling troubled juveniles, including locations such as Burns, Salem, Portland, etc. Milligan is now serving a 60-year prison sentence for the kidnapping of a 10-year-old boy in 2000, raping him, and then slashing his throat. The child survived the attack, though. Milligan was also convicted of sexually abusing an 11-year-old boy. During the time of speaking to the authorities, Milligan had already been sentenced to 36 years for crimes involving the 10-year-old boy. He was speaking to police on the condition that he wouldn't be handed a death sentence. Milligan even told authorities where they would find Derek's body. A Marion County Assistant District Attorney told the Ingebretsons that Milligan had agreed to plead guilty to killing Derek if they agreed to spare him the death penalty. Lori has said she remembers her hand trembling as she signed the papers that would spare Milligan's life. Those papers being the family consenting to not push for the death penalty in Derek's case. Robert broke down in sobs. But when Milligan faced the paperwork pleading his guilt a few days later, he refused to sign and recanted his statement. The prosecutor later told Lori that Milligan, who was 33 at the time, might not live long enough to eventually walk free, and had pushed away the pen. No deal, he said. Well, Derek's parents drove five hours to Silver Falls State Park southeast of Salem and waited as the FBI used ground-penetrating radar to scan for Derek's bones. And after several days of searching, they didn't come up with anything. When a search turned out to be fruitless, he recanted his confession. Well, the car was searched during the investigation of the 10-year-old boy's case with nothing found pertaining to Derek's case. While no physical evidence has ever been found, some witnesses report seeing Milligan's 1998 black Honda in the area at the time of Derek's disappearance. Frank Milligan has not been charged in connection with Derek's case, but he is still considered a strong suspect. The authorities theorized that Derek made it to the roadside on the day of his disappearance and was picked up by Milligan. An inmate of Milligan's told police and Derek's family that he bragged about killing the missing boy while he was in prison. Not so much as a trace of Derek, not his gloves, bearing the logo of Goosebumps books that he loved so much. Not the jacket that he hated to wear or the hatchet that he loved to carry. Nothing has turned up in his disappearance since December 5th of 98. After Milligan recanted, the Ingebretsons struggled with competing emotions. On one hand, they felt relief because Milligan's failure to produce Derek's body meant that they didn't have to mourn his death. At least not then. But on the other hand, they still didn't know what happened to their son. Detectives now have received tips from as far away as San Francisco, and recently, as of the past couple of years, they said that this is probably the largest volume of information that they've ever received on any cold case, according to Detective Nick Kennedy. Even after 20 years, you can still see all the nails and all the tacks left in the trees and light poles in Klamath County. After all this time, Derek's mom still has hope that he will one day walk through their front door. 
the remote-controlled Bigfoot truck and laser-sighted BB guns that Mrs. Ingebrigtsen brought her son for Christmas are still wrapped, and underneath the artificial Christmas tree in the family's home. That family has never put up a live tree again. She said that there's no clothing, I can't imagine, that would fit him now, even if he does come home. The paper is starting to come off the presents because it's so old. At first it was tough, but now it's... It's just a permanent fixture in the house. Nobody says anything about it to anyone. Every once in a while, we just stare at it. But nobody talks about it anymore. She said that they haven't given up on him being alive and that they pray every single night for him to be alive and in the safe hands of someone. Bob was the last person to see Derek alive. He passed away in 2012. Never found out what happened to his grandson. Lori and Robert are now grandparents themselves and have close relationships with their kids and their kids' families. Yet, in the midst of change, one thing is constant. Lori still believes her son was kidnapped and is not in Pelican Butte. Despite the passage of time, Derek never left their hearts. Every year, they hope their beloved son will come home for Christmas. The Ingerbretsons have now celebrated 22 Christmases without Derek. Each one is more painful than the last. They don't feel closure. They, like I, think closure is an overused word. They don't know exactly what happened to Derek. But Derek's mom says that he does come to her in her dreams. He smiles and makes a promise. I'll see you soon. Lori said in 2018 that she wants to believe that he's still alive to this day. And until someone shows her different, she said that I don't think I'm ever going to give up on him. The family is stronger than they ever knew. When they found out their daughter Amy was having their first grandchild, they had their hope again. The granddaughter's due date was even set to be Christmas Eve of 2006. Well, today, Derek would be 31 years old. As of July 5th of this year, anyway. Lori describes him with a scar on his chin and a scar underneath his nose from a dog bite. Derek had brown hair and brown eyes when he went missing. If you have any information about Derek James Ingebretson's disappearance, please contact the Klamath County Sheriff's Office at area code 541-883-5130. Again, that number is 541-883-5130. Remember to support the Mountain Mysteries on Patreon, and you can find out more about us by logging on to our website at www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com. For the Mountain Mysteries, the Mountain Mysteries Gatherings, and the Mountain Mysteries Blurs, I'm Chris Lowe. Stay mysterious. If you enjoy the Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. 
You can also help support the Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. Studio Production.